0: What's up, Chicago? I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. Tonight, Chicago is remembering a sculptor and artist whose work can be spotted across the city. Richard Hunt passed away last week. If you don't know the name, you've probably seen the work. His sculptures are all over Chicago and all over the country. The lifelong Chicagoan is best known for large-scale metal works honoring African-American history and some of the country's greatest heroes, including... Martin Luther King Jr. and Ida B. Wells. To honor Hunt, I talked with someone who knew him well.
1: I mean, Richard's like a second father to me. I mean, I, I love him.
0: This is John Ott, Richard Hunt's biographer and a close friend of his. What do you know of Richard Hunt's last few weeks of life?
1: Richard is someone who spent as much time in the studio creating art as he possibly could. Um, his wishes were always to have died with a hammer in his hand, uh, working on a piece of art. And we tried to accommodate that, but we also had to accommodate his comfort and his, and his passing. So ultimately, he passed it
0: home. John told me that for most people, Richard's passing was a shock. But the people close to Richard knew it was coming. He said Barack Obama got a heads up, and he was actually one of Richard's last visitors.
1: President Obama came and, to his bedside spoke with him about how much he meant to Chicago, to him and Michelle, to the art world, and really paid him a great honor in doing so. So he was very, very happy about that.
0: Now, if you're still like, wait, who is Richard Hunt? You're not the only one. John told me that Richard lived to make art. So self-promotion wasn't really the first thing on his mind.
1: Richard Hunt was a man who was so incredibly humble and soft-spoken in many ways, it's up to all the rest of us to really carry his legacy forward and understand the import of what he's done, because he certainly didn't talk about his importance himself.
0: I asked John to introduce us to Richard.
1: I would say he's one of the most important figures in art history. He was using the industrial materials of the time, and if you were to ask Richard, he would say the same of Michelangelo, who was using marble just as they were building bridges out of marble Mm. and stone, he was carving. And just as Chicago was a city of steel and iron and copper piping and aluminum, that he was creating art out of those same materials. So he very much saw himself in that lineage.
0: Today, we're going to look back at the incredible life of this prolific sculptor, his childhood on the South Side, his startling scholarship to the School of the Art Institute, and how the death of Emmett Till, his neighbor, profoundly changed his art. But first, I asked John how he got so close to such a legend.
1: My parents had introduced me to Richard when I was in high school. They had attended some events with Richard, and Richard, as the ever-gracious man that he was, invited uh, our family to come see him in his studio. And I was taken with him, as so many are, pulled into the absolute awestruck moment of seeing this incredible cathedral-like studio Mm. in Chicago, something that is unlike really any artist studio that that has existed in this country.
0: Describe it. Take me there.
1: It has skylights 45 feet above and the light pours in as if light from a stained glass cathedral. Mm. It's a wide open space, uh, 5,000 square feet. But I use the word cathedral, not just because of the impression of, of how it looks, um, but also because the man who inhabits it is, is much like a monk Mm. living in a very Mm. austere, life. Richard was not someone who sought to accumulate wealth. He was living in the present moment every day. Mm. And I think that's why he drew so many people into his orbit. And so many people considered him a part of their family. He was so in the moment, both in the presence of people, but certainly in the presence of his art. I asked him the most sophisticated question I could think of as a teenager, which was, <laughs> what what are your influences? And he answered that question as, as if I was a reporter for the Tribune or the Times. Mm-hmm. He took me through the 1953 Sculpture of the 20th Century show. He started talking about Julio Gonzalez and Constantin Brancusi and Pablo Picasso and, and mentioned a slew of names that I had not yet come across. And that really started me on a journey because when I left that day, I didn't just have this incredible impression of this great, talented sculptor that I had met. He also led me down my journey of art history discovery. In 2003, I was engaged to be married to my lovely bride, Molly, and I decided, well, now I'm grown up enough that I should be able to collect a piece of art. And so I said, I know exactly who I want to go to and made a beeline for Richard's studio. Mm. And of course, he welcomed me with open arms and I bought my first small sculpture and that started my art collection. And at that time, as we were planning our wedding, we invited him to our wedding as a, as a guest of honor, thinking, of course, he wouldn't be able to come. He showed up. And not only that, but he took to the dance floor, and we had drinks (laughs) together, and we really enjoyed a moment together. And, you know, he's been a member of our family, or mine of his, ever since.
0: Wow, that's really beautiful. I wonder if you can tell me about his early life, and how and where he grew up.
1: He was born in the rented second bedroom of an 800-square-foot house in Woodlawn. His parents were what he described as strivers. They were doing everything to to get ahead and provide a life for him and his younger sister. Where he was born geographically is of some consequence because uh, when he was a toddler, two blocks north of his home was Lorraine Hansberry's house, where the White mob assembled outside and started throwing things through the window.
0: And this is Lorraine Hansberry uh, was a famed playwright.
1: Famed playwright, yes, that would go on to to, to write about that event in some detail. That was two blocks north of his home. Two blocks east of his home was the childhood home of Emmett Till, who uh, he didn't know at the time, but would go on to play a really... Mm -hmm. Formative experience in in Richard's coming of age.
0: Mm-hmm. How did he become drawn to art as a as a youngin?
1: He was very much encouraged by his mother. He's sometimes described his father as tolerant and his mother as encouraging. She was a singer. She performed in black opera companies. She enrolled him in classes at the Southside Community Arts Center. So his support as a child participating in the arts was there. And it was really aided by this background of consistent visits to Chicago's great museums, which were all free and open to the public at the time, which she took Uh full advantage of. But also keep in mind, his mother was the first black librarian woman in the city of Chicago. And he grew up literally on the floor of Chicago's libraries, including what is now the Chicago Cultural Center, Wow. And then enrolled at age of thirteen at the junior school of the art institute. Fourteen is when he met his teacher, Nellie Barr, who really recognized his particular gift for sculpture and it mm. him in that route up until he applied for a scholarship to the School of the Art Institute.
0: Right. So so this was a really pivotal moment, right? This this application to, to that scholarship while he was a teenager at Inglewood High School. Can you tell me about that that time and how that went?
1: It certainly was. At the time, he had been studying art since he was 13. And as a senior in high school, saw a flyer in the hallway that invited Chicagoans to submit their art for a full-ride scholarship to the School of the Art Institute for a bachelor's degree. He submitted um, paintings, drawings that he had done. And a number of months later, he received back the news that he had won the scholarship. Mm-hmm. And that was an incredible moment for him because he, he was so intellectual. He could have chosen a number of different routes in his life. He, and he's told me he could have gone on to be a scientist. He could have gone on to be an academic. He had a wide array of interest and was a true Renaissance man. However, in in this way, you know, he had he had chosen art, but I think at this moment of his life, art chose him Uh and he was awarded the scholarship. When he went to receive the scholarship, it was an event. And as you might imagine, the panelists, the judges were mainly society ladies, uh, wives of people (laughs) who were patrons of the museum uh, community. What
0: year is this? Get, get, you know, give us a sense of yeah. What time are we in American history at this point? Sure. This
1: is this would be in 1952.
0: All right. All right. Okay. You know,
1: he's he's uh, segregation he's, uh,
0: is is alive and well.
1: Yes, uh, certainly. Uh, <laughs> and he he's a you know a senior at Inglewood High School, and he shows up to the ceremony where he's going to be awarded it, and he describes the scene as. I don't know who they were expecting, but they weren't expecting me. <laughs> <laughs> he went to receive his scholarship, and I often think of that moment in Richard's life much like the, the modern television show, The Voice. He had been chosen only for his talent. Um, what a wonderful thing that is.
0: Yeah. So at this point, he's doing a lot of sketching. Um, how, How did he become interested in sculpture?
1: In that exhibition, the 1953 sculpture of the 20th century that had traveled from New York Museum of Modern Art to the Art Institute in Chicago, he fell in love with metal. And that is when he resolved to become a metal sculptor. But not having any means, he, inspired by that exhibition and the incredible talent on display, made a beeline to the hardware store in the mm-hmm. south side of Chicago in Inglewood and bought himself a soldering gun and a spool of galvanized iron wire mm. and created his own technique to be a metal welder. And he would take those soldered wire figures. At this point, his art was figurative um, and would sell those at art fairs, raising money to save up for a welding torch, which Mm -hmm. is what he had set his sights on.
0: Wow. Uh, talk about assemblage, (laughs) assemblage art, um, and just like straight up ingenuity and, and resourceful resourcefulness. Um, I, I I can't imagine just creating your own technique just out of sheer motivation to, to get better and do what you want to do. Um, Another pivotal moment in his artistic career happened while he was a student at the School of the Art Institute. Tell me about how people first started to take notice of his art.
1: Well, he started in the mid-50s when he was in school to submit some of his art to the Art Institute's Chicago and Vicinity art competitions, the famed curator of the Museum of Modern Art, Dorothy C. Miller, came to be a juror on one of those exhibitions. Mm -hmm. And she saw a piece called Arachne. And that was something that she recommended to the Museum of Modern Art to acquire. And they did, and it was shown later that month. Mm. So here was a student still in his undergraduate degree studies, having his first piece acquired from MoMA, which has happened since then, but in the 50s was unheard of. And certainly uh, from a young African-American sculptor.
0: Wow. I have a picture pulled up um, of, of this piece. And I don't know if you can, you probably can't see it, but if, if you can even remember, I mean, it's it's giving humanoid, um, <laughs> but also, uh, you know, I mean, it's figurative. Um, can you describe it for the person listening?
1: Certainly the piece is a figure turning, spinning in a moment of metamorphosis. You know, this idea of metamorphosis was a crucial aspect that Richard Hunt meditated on and really thought a lot about because of the change of of him becoming a man, because of the change of where we were in history, Mm -hmm. and because of the role that art was playing, certainly in Changing Expectations, um metamorphosis occurred as a consistent theme through many aspects of his life.
0: I want to get into that a little bit. In the context of him being like an artist during the civil rights movement, him creating art inspired by that, him contributing <laughs> to the civil rights movement. I mean, this is this is a dynamic kind of way to be. Um, and I, I wonder if you can tell me more about how his he himself and as an artist and as a person existed.
1: Certainly. Well, I think up until the point of the open casket funeral of Emmett Till, Richard's artwork was characteristically more juvenile. It was contemplating figures uh, that were family life. It was contemplating mm-hmm. figures and depicting things that he had seen in the circus. <laughs> so there was a playfulness, uh, mm-hmm. and there was a, a, the innocence of youth. I asked him once if he had ever gotten trouble you know when he was a kid and all he could come up with was he stayed late at the field museum looking at the african artifacts and when he was when he got home quite late he received quite a uh, a reprimand from his mother and you know that, I think that story is so representative of richard someone who would, of course till the till the day that he died you know would get lost in art
0: yes wow so that that
1: that noticeable change that occurs from the moment that he saw Emmett Till, you see his art take a very different turn. Mm. You see the surrealist uh, elements of his art emerge. You see things that represent bones, organs exposed. You Mm. see um, the kind of uh, piece like Hero's Head, which is most emblematic, which is a direct representation of Emmett Till's head Mm. that he did just a few months after he saw Emmett Till, which has the cracked skull. It has one eye missing. It's a deformed face. It's the, you know, the bloated lips from being, you know, submerged. He saw that face and he recreated it in steel. It's a, what the Washington post just recently described as a modest, but searing piece. And he did, Paperworks as well. He did uh, a piece called Prometheus. That piece represented the story of Prometheus, who was chained to a rock and had an eagle eat out his liver every day. He was cursed by the Jeez. gods. That piece that he did of Prometheus, however, had a deformed face. Right? Mm-hmm. It was a it was a martyred figure, and this idea of simultaneously struggling to find optimism struggling to find hope Mm. for the future but reconciling with the violence that he witnessed was something he worked through with his art and i think where he landed is where everyone would recognize him and know him today which is art that represents ascension flight freedom in every form of course freedom from gravity in a in a simple sense you know flight is is moving away from the earth it's the ability to ascend uh-huh. but it's also getting closer to heaven it's also getting closer to our ideals and certainly he spent a lot of time reading about the history of the african american experience that informed that idea of always wanting to well, he would, as he would say, "lift as we climb." Mm-hmm.
0: I see that you have a, a Richard Hunt corner behind you on, on your bookshelf, <laughs> or,
1: or wall, um, yeah,
0: uh, or, or wall. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll extend it all the way out. Um, Richard had a big life. We can't cover it all, but is there anything else you want to? make sure people know about him.
1: How remarkable he was as a human being. His warmth, his humility, combined with his truly towering intellect. He was a a genius. That simultaneous feeling of being included in his orbit and the love that he emanates while knowing that you're standing in front of greatness is overwhelming. He opened up a whole new world to me and I think he does that to everyone that is interested in his art. He's a, he's a gateway to better understanding ourselves as people, as a country, and, and certainly the African-American history that he's represented in his pieces.
0: John Ott is a Richard Hunt biographer. He's also the archivist and vice chair of the Richard Hunt Legacy Foundation. John, thank you so much for sharing about Richard Hunt, the man that you knew and loved so much.
1: Thank you so much. And I'll end with what Richard Hunt would have ended. Goodbye for now.
0: Goodbye for now. John also told us to look out for more details because there's going to be a public celebration of Richard Hunt's life, and that'll be this spring in Chicago. And that's it for today. Thank you to Justin Bull and Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and to Ariel Van Clee for editing the show. Brendan Banaszak is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Louis Weeks and The Rundown is produced by WBEZ Chicago and is a part of the NPR Network. I'm Erin Allen. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. I hope that it's going to be a long weekend. We are going to be off. No episodes on Monday, but we'll be back on Tuesday. Happy holidays if you celebrate.